I'm Tony Venables. I uh, was a professor of international economics here. Um, I think I've been invited to introduce Paul because I had the uh, great pleasure of uh, co-authoring some stuff with him uh, some years ago. Anyway, as you all know, Paul Krugman is probably the most influential uh, economist uh, of, of, of his generation. He's, he's currently a professor at Princeton University. He has some 200-plus academic articles to his name, 20-plus uh, books, uh, and, of course, uh, the, his uh, more popular writings, uh, the New York Times uh, column. Uh, his visit today is passing through Britain fairly fast, I think, in connection with the European launch of uh, his, his textbook, uh, which just, I believe, goes under the title of Economics. Is that correct? I think so. Um, a best-selling American textbook, now, now in its European edition. Uh, he's going to be back later in the summer, spending some more time in LSE, uh, I'm happy to say. Anyway, his title for today is uh, re Revisiting Trade and Wages. It's an area uh, uh, that attracted some attention in recent years, but has, I think, left a lot of international economics, economists feeling quite uncomfortable that the answers given when we last looked at, at the question weren't quite satisfying. So I'm very much looking forward to hearing uh, what Paul has to say on revisiting the subject. So, Paul. Okay. So let's um, make sure that the technology. Uh, the, okay, so let me tell you about uh, this. This is, uh, in a way, this talk is a sketch. Uh, part, part of it is some of the material. I'm going to be doing this, this larger lecture at the LSE uh, uh, next month, and so this is a, a preliminary uh, work. And, and it's an attempt to pull together. Uh, some thoughts on this uh, terribly uh, important issue. Uh, let me give you – my motivation in, in going to this issue is partly uh, intellectual, that uh, I thought it was necessary for me to, to revisit an issue that I worked on quite a lot, but not for some time, uh, and it's partly political. And uh, the uh, – let me, let me give you first just a, a – a statement, an overview of some of the U.S. political um, issues here. Uh, as you know, we've had a uh, interesting few years in U.S. politics, um, and uh, they have, in some ways, been very easy years for someone of my bent, in the sense that that you didn't have much disagreement about trying to stop whatever those people were doing, uh, and that was about it. Uh, but uh, we have now had a uh, uh, in the uh, the legislature. We've now had a change of control. Uh, there's at least the prospect that we may be having you know, serious discussions about actual policy views uh, uh, in, in the years ahead. And it's clear that one of the things that's going to be at the forefront is going to be trade. Uh, it's going to be, among other things, a very d deeply divisive issue uh, on my side of the political fence because people who agree about a lot of things uh, disagree about international trade and international trade policy. Uh, and now, as we come back to this, uh, it's going, it turns out that it's a much more uh, politically fraught uh, issue than before. Uh, and as I'll explain in a bit, it's, that's, for, that's partly because of the change in the political scene, but it's also because actually the underlying economics is very likely to have changed. So let me just give you background for a second. Um, this is back in the days when there was – it was less fraught. Uh, and we had in the United States a vote on the, uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement. And it was something that was pushed, although negotiated by the first Bush administration, pushed by the Clinton administration, uh, and passed with uh, Republicans more supportive than Democrats, but with substantial by bipartisan overlap. There were a, a lot of, uh, of Democrats voting for it, a lot of Republicans, and also a, uh, a reasonably secure uh, majority. Uh, and it was easy, relatively easy, for the proponents to make the case that this was a good thing for the majority of, of people in the United States. Uh, whether they were right is something now that's still hotly debated, but it was, it was relatively easy. Now, we had a more recent uh, trade agreement uh, that was 
uh, involved Central America uh, and was, you know, there are a lot of differences between, but I just want to look at, at how the votes have changed. Um, and this is uh, CAFTA, sometimes Dr. CAFTA, because it's also got the Dominican Republic in it. Uh, but the, uh, uh, the CAFTA vote, um, okay, first thing, of course, it's, it's uh, it, you know, passed essentially by one vote. Uh, and it, that only happened because they kept the vote open for uh, more than an hour while going around the uh, House floor twisting arms, uh, typical of the way things have worked lately. Um, but also uh, intensely, intensely partisan. Uh, really very, very nearly uh, complete polarization on the trade issue, uh, which is something that uh, should make you think, uh, is this the way it's going to be? And what what do, you know, it's my uh, sympathies are not a, uh, uh, are not a secret here. Uh, what does somebody who is on the second line uh, of this table, but uh, but has normally uh, been in the in the first column, uh, what what do you say to the people who who say, "Gee, this the you know trade is a real problem, and I'm really concerned about income distribution." Now, uh, here's uh, where we start. This is U.S. data, and this is going to be very U.S.-centric, although uh, I, I believe that the issues apply to other advanced countries as well. Um, what we have uh, as the underlying or as the backdrop to all of this is, now there's rising inequality, and I'll talk about other dimensions of rising inequality later because in some ways on the trade issue, those are the saving grace. Uh, but we have rising inequality, um, rising gap between workers with a college degree and those with only a, a high school degree. Um, central question in the trade debate is how much of this can we attribute to international trade? How much, uh, if you're trying to deal with, you can, you can argue, look, there are arguments in principle that even if international trade is contributing in a major way to this widening gap, um, of course, you can... Uh, have compensation. Trade is beneficial. You can comp you can tax the winners and and compensate the losers, and everyone will be better off. Uh, but that's kind of a weak argument, since in practice it's that often tends not to happen. Um, you can argue that uh, there are other considerations that mean that you really, really don't want to be protectionist. And and just to say, for the most part, that's where I fall on this. That the uh, the the real problem with being uh, with certainly for the United States, doing anything to significantly restrict imports of labor-intensive products is not the implications for the United States, but the implications for the world, and particularly for poor countries. So in some sense, what I'm really caring about here, the reason why I'm still uh, a pro-globalization person is, uh, is not the United States, but Bangladesh. You want to worry about what, what happens to the, to the parties on the other side. But that, again, is not that effective an argument in the domestic political debate, at least by itself. Um, or you can argue, look, um, this doesn't have much to do with trade, uh, which is the position that uh, most of people like myself had in the um, uh, in, in, in the uh, in the early 1990s, at the time of the NAFTA debate. Now, it was not, should not ever have been a position that says, well, uh, in principle, trade is good for everybody. And it can't do any uh, any harm. That doesn't have distributional effects because we know that's not right. Uh, in fact, this is one of these things where orthodox economic theory is much more pessimistic about uh, issues of trade and income distribution than much of the public discussion is. Uh, it, it, we we know pr quite clearly that at least in in many of the the popular models that we use to think about international trade, uh, trade does have very strong effects on income distribution and does produce losers as well as winners. Uh, and possibly large groups of losers as well as winners within countries. Um, and the, in these issues, I, I continue to believe that the right way to think about it, for the most part, is the good old uh, uh, Heckscher-Oline uh, two factors of production model, where you think of yourself, and the, for, for the most part, it's not capital versus labor, but uh, highly educated versus less educated labor. Uh, where advanced countries tend to export um, uh, products that are that are make extensive use of highly educated labor and import products that make use of less educated labor, I try to avoid the skilled unskilled thing. Although that's the way we, if I slip into that, uh, I'm quite aware that many of the jobs that are done by 
people without college degrees actually are harder than the jobs done by uh, and even require more skill in some sense than those done by uh, by us useless academics. But the uh, um, but but it's it's certainly what we really mean is is uh, formal education. Um, there's been an, an awful lot of uh, enormous amounts of empirical work in economics. Uh, we know that that simple story, story that says that trade patterns are determined by the interaction between the uh, the uh, intensity with which you use skilled and unskilled labor. There, see, I just did it. Uh, and the the uh, resources of countries is an incomplete picture of trade. Uh, it's it's not enough, but it nonetheless it clearly is a strong element. So. Um, there are some, there's a lovely picture by uh, John Ramallis in the, uh, uh, in, in the American Economic Review a couple of years ago that, uh, that had some terrific uh, uh, pictures, which I'm just going to uh, steal unmercifully. So this is one of his pictures. Uh, he's got a, a ranking of industries by skill intensity, meaning really college degree, college educated. Uh, and it looks at what share of U.S. imports does a country account for? And he's got just two countries in this picture, uh, Bangladesh at the one end and Germany at the other. So presumably Bangladesh having a, uh, a, a labor force with very few people with high, higher education, uh, Germany a labor force with a lot of people. And um, as you can see, Germany's exports to the United States are tilted towards the high skill end. Uh, Bangladesh's are tilted towards the low-skill end. And so there's no real question that when the United States or the European Union trades with a poor country with relatively low-educated workforce, it is importing labor-intensive products. Uh, and that tells us that should be having effects on income distribution. It should be tending to uh, raise the wage of people with higher education, tending to lower the wage of people uh, without higher education. Um, and the, uh, this is not in dispute. Seriously speaking, we're, we're not going to argue that there. Uh, I don't think I've ever argued that there was uh, uh, that there was no effect. That, that trade is wonderful for everybody. In fact, uh, it, it should be causing some income distribution effects, which are troubling. Uh, but the question has always been how much. Um, and back in the the uh, at the time of the NAFTA agreement and thereabouts in the United States. Uh, the argument made by people like myself was, sure, um, definitely there's an issue in principle, but, you know, it's not that big. Globalization, international trade is not that big a deal for, for income distribution. And um, that enabled you to uh, you know, somewhat uh, uh, push it into the background and argue that, that the other considerations clearly dominated. Um, I'm not going to completely abandon that view, but I've had two uh, profound insights. Um, the first is that it's uh, not 1993 anymore. Um, and the second is that China is really, really big. Uh, and that's really what I'm going to be talking about today because it, it, does, uh, it does create some, some problems for the, uh, uh, for the view that, that I, I, I advocated. I, I think that what I said what all of us said in the early 90s was entirely correct, uh, at least about the present, but, uh, but um, things have moved on a bit. So here is actually, I wrote a piece in uh, 1995 uh, for Brookings called Growing World Trade Causes and Consequences. Um, and you can see, uh, I'm acknowledging the problem, uh, the growth has uh, of, of the low-wage exports uh, from manufactured exports has certainly had some role in the growth of unemployment in Europe and of wage inequality in the United States, um, but said it was modest, and I didn't su doesn't support the apocalyptic views about the future. And underlying that was basically this. This, were, this is U.S. data. Uh, imports of manufactured goods from newly industrialized economies uh, went from nothing in 1970 the data that one actually had is of, you know, of the mid to um, uh, early to mid 90s. The, uh, the base data on which we were basing this was 1990 data, really, uh, and it was up to a bit shy of 2% of GDP. And if you did so huge academic discussion here, but if you did uh, a but-for experiment, 
Asked what would the distribution of income be? What would wages be uh, but for the presence of these new industrializing economies that export to the United States? So it, imagine a hypothetical world in which the uh, uh, liberalization in South Korea, Hong Kong, Taiwan, um, Singapore had never taken place, in which the rise of manufactured exports had never taken place. How different would wages and income distribution be? And the answer was different but not hugely so. So I did... Uh, an estimate which came up with the relative wage of, uh, of non-college educated workers being depressed by about 3%. Uh, some other people came up with somewhat, uh, somewhat larger uh, numbers, but it was they were still all in this sort of relatively small fraction even of the rise of the college high school wage differential. And so it was a, a manageable size issue, not nothing but manageable size. Um, I worried uh, even then that there might be a problem. And uh, so actually when I started to think about this, I went to take a look and find out what, uh, what do we now know? Uh, what have the latest report studies done? And the odd thing is uh, there aren't any. Uh, I'm not sure there aren't any, but there are hardly any um, updates. So this is Ben Bernanke this year, uh, and he's was talking about distribution and Brit did talk about international trade and said uh, it appears to be moderate, but he did say, whoops, uh, gee, it's funny. Uh, it seems to be only stuff from the, uh, the 80s and the 90s, and where are we uh, today? And uh, we don't know. Back when I was writing in the mid-90s, uh, what I said, I, you know, uh, this could be bigger in the future than it is now, uh, but I was hopeful that it wouldn't be so bad. That the, uh, uh, for one thing, that as the newly industrializing countries grew, uh, they would also become richer and more skilled. And so, although there would be bigger exports from these countries, it would, they would actually be less biased towards labor-intensive products. The distributional effects would be um, smaller, even though the the volume of their exports might grow. Um, and uh, you know. Um, that I just didn't think it was going to be uh, that serious. Uh, but uh, did try to ask what could happen in a, uh, a worst-case scenario. All right. The uh, insight here is that the, uh, that the, the shorter version of my, my two blindingly uh, original insights, that it's not 1993 and, and, uh, and China is really, really big, um, is that we are actually looking quite a lot like my worst-case scenario right now. Um, now, what, what one was saying there about how these uh, newly industrializing economies would become less distinctive, would become move up the scale, is true for the original group of countries. So if we look at uh, – oh, I'm sorry. Well, let me do that. Let me skip to that one, and I'll go back. If we look at the uh, – uh, this is the original gang of four uh, countries. Uh, if we look at the relationship between their skill intensity uh, and their share of exports, you see this, you know, in, in 1960, they were very much exporting very labor-intensive, low-skill products. Uh, by 1980, already that was less distinctive. And at this point, uh, you know, at the, uh, I've noticed that the, many of the statistical classifications by international organizations uh, no longer... Uh, they, they actually uh, class those original group of newly industrializing economies as part of the advanced world, uh, which in terms of export composition, wage levels, and so on is, is basically right. So if that was the story, um, it would be true that, look, they've grown, but it's not, it's not actually increasing. It's probably reducing the distributional effect. Um, but the problem is, this is the thing, this is, uh, this is the story these are U.S. imports of manufactured goods from newly industrializing economies. Um, the last time we did a lot of work on this was basically those 1990 figures, around 2% of GDP. It's now above 5. Um, what's that coming from? Primarily for the United States, it's two things. Uh, China, first and foremost, but also Mexico because of uh, NAFTA and Mexican trade liberalization uh, domestically. So you have a Mexico shifting towards becoming a uh, an outward-oriented manufacturing and exporting economy no longer is just an oil-producing um, uh, import-substituting economy. Uh, so you have a, a dramatic increase 
uh, which would right away suggest to you that you know, whatever your estimate was of the distributional impacts of trade in the, uh, you know, in, in based on 1990 data, which is more or less where we were uh, in the mid-90s, uh, I should probably uh, increase that by a factor of two and a half or so, uh, that we really are in a, uh, you know, these things have gotten bigger. Now that, I should say, that in itself doesn't necessarily make it overwhelming all the same. If I had said 3%, then, so I might now be saying 8%. Uh, that's, but that's, that's not trivial now. That's not something you can easily dismiss. Uh, if you started with something like Bill Klein's estimates at the Institute for International Economics, which were about twice mine, uh, then you're talking about uh, 15% uh, or more, and, and that's, that's starting to get uh, quite significant. I, I, I think I was, you know, I have to believe that I was more right than he was, but uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it, we're no longer in the range where you can easily say this is a second-order minor effect on distribution. Um, one way to look at this, so uh, this was the change here, the, uh, the increasing sophistication, upskilling of the original uh, newly industrialized economies. Uh, one thing that we used to say um, was that, look, if you actually look at the sources of U.S. imports, um, the average wage of those exporters uh, relative to the U.S. has been rising, not falling. In the early 90s, this was a very common argument, partly because of rising wages in Europe, but also because, in fact, the original newly industrializing economies of East Asia were, were experiencing rapid wage gains. So you looked, and over time, uh, if you thought of what was the representative supplier of manufactured goods to the U.S. market, it was actually an increasingly high-wage country, leading you to think that maybe the growth in the numbers wasn't that big a deal for distribution. Um, that is no longer true. And this is a little bit preliminary. I've tried to uh, adjust the uh, U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers on this measure uh, by putting China, which is not in their index, into it. Uh, and what you see is that you go, it was true in the early 90s, the typical U.S. Uh, manufacturer's trading partner was higher wage relative to the U.S. than it had been in 1975. Um, it's now gone back down, and that's because you have a huge, now have a, a, a 20 or so percent of U.S. manufactured imports coming from China, which has a, an, a wage uh, compensation per hour. Uh, the numbers are flaky. Uh, but it's on the order of 3% of U.S. level. So that's that, that growth is going to drag you down. Actually, Mexico is also in there because you have a significant increase in, uh, and that's 15% of U.S. level. But it's uh, for, it's, uh, you know, uh, so it's, it's, uh, you have much more trade, and it's coming actually from countries that relatively are lower wage compared to advanced countries than those that we were worried about in, in the early 90s. Uh, so as I said, you know, it's, uh, it's not 1993 anymore, and China is really, really big and really, really low wage uh, even now. Um, serious uh, stuff to worry about uh, in terms of the distribution. Um, one of the things, the other thing that, that uh, bears on this, one of the consoling features uh, about distributional effects of trade in the, in the uh, early uh, 90s was the sense that there was not that far it could go. That, yes, of course, you can get uh, competition from low-wage countries driving you out of the really labor-intensive industries, uh, but once that had happened, you'd really reach the limits of, of how far uh, the, the process could go. Uh, and it was... In terms of the traditional low-wage industries, uh, labor-intensive industries, it pretty much has gone the whole way. The United States has got uh, almost nobody. I think it's now about 200,000, don't quote me on that number, uh, workers in apparel. And, 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 and most of them are probably misclassified. Uh, that's not the traditional apparel industry. So we, we really have the low-wage, traditional low-wage manufacturing has just gone completely away. Uh, but, again, even... Uh, even 12 years ago, there was a thought, it was already starting to happen, with that, that uh, you can create new labor-intensive industries by uh, breaking up old ones. If you have improved technology, 
for international exchange, you can slice things up. You can the, the current word, which I uh, wasn't using back then, but is, is fragmentation. Uh, and one version of fragmentation is outsourcing, that you can take the uh, the high uh, the high skill parts of of a uh, of, of a production process and keep that in the first world country, uh, but you can slice off the more labor intensive parts and, and move them elsewhere. Um, so we saw that as a possibility. Now it's uh, it's become. Uh, First of all, it's been happening, which is why you've been able to have so much growth in uh, in, in exports from China without a dramatic uh, deterioration in their terms of trade. Um, and there are fears of it uh, getting uh, much bigger. Um, the extent of those fears uh, was, I think, highlighted by the experience of my colleague Alan Blinder at Princeton. Um, he wrote a piece for Foreign Affairs uh, saying, gee, uh, you know, with modern technology, a lot more stuff may be tradable than before, and a lot of jobs could be uh, exposed to international competition. Uh, reasonable insight. Uh, I think him not being a trade person, he probably didn't realize what was going to happen to him, which is that he immediately gets adopted as a mascot by uh, all the protectionist forces uh, and uh, beyond what, what he had in mind. Um, but it's... Uh, you know, what should we be concerned about? And for what it's, it's worth, the, uh, what Alan said, which was that there may be 30, 40 million jobs that are exposed to foreign competition, is probably not the most uh, helpful way to, to put it because that makes you think, oh, my God, all those jobs are going to leave. And that's not going to happen. The U.S. isn't going to go out of business. The European Union isn't going to go out of business. What is going to happen is that there will be the possibility of more trade that does these kinds of things. So let me talk about outsourcing. Uh, now, particularly, I've got Tony here, who's done substantial work on this, and, I, and uh, uh, I'm going to do some, tell you a story that's actually much simpler. I'm also going to give you some funny diagrams, which those of you who aren't trade economists may find either illuminating or annoying. Uh, but let me let me do that for a second. Um, it is a subject that is. There, there are, uh, how can I say, there, there's, there's a lot of mystique uh, about it, and it's a subject I think tends to be made more complicated than it needs to be. Um, my, uh, or at least uh, we need to understand what are the simple things and what are not. So it's, uh, Princeton is a hotbed of outsourcing thinking right now. So two others of my colleagues, Gene uh, uh, Grossman and Esteban Rossi Heinberg, have a, a paper which has is a really interesting paper with a completely misleading title. It says a, a simple theory of offshoring, uh, and it's the one thing it isn't is, is simple. Um, so uh, let me let me give you a simple view. Uh, and to do that, I need to tell you a story that trade economists know, but maybe not everyone else does. Um, it's the the story of uh, of Samuelson's angel. Uh, and if you don't know that, they'll explain it to you. Uh, Samuelson had this story. It actually goes back to 1949. He said, imagine a world. And uh, he was thinking capital and labor, but let's just call it. There's a world of high-skilled and low-skilled workers um, who are and, – and there are no boundaries. It's just, it's just a, a world in a single location. Um, and uh, uh, in that world, the economy does what economies do, at least in the warped minds of economists. It grinds out an equilibrium. Uh, and uh, in which there are two industries here we, in this one. There's one which high-skill industry and a low-skill industry, computers and apparel. Uh, and this box um, is uh, meant to represent the world. The vertical uh, length is the number of high-skill workers, the horizontal no number of low-skill workers. Uh, there's a certain amount of workers employed in computers, high-skilled and low-skilled, and, uh, and the rest are employed in apparel. So it's, uh, you know, so this, those two uh, arrows represent the employment in the two sectors. All right, fine, everything is 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 the way it is. Uh, but they uh, they do something uh, that offends higher powers, uh, and so uh, an angel descends. Uh, it's clear, uh, Samuelson. This is the angel from the Tower of Babel story, uh, and the angel uh, smites the factors of production on the forehead 
and tell some of them that they're in one country and some of them that they're in another country. And, and, and factors from different countries can't work together. So there are the high-skilled workers, and some of them have got what our two countries are north and south. So the, the high-skilled workers and the low-skilled workers have all got little N's or S's stamped on their forehead, and they're not allowed to work with each other. Um, and what Samuelson pointed out was as long as the countries are not too different in their mix of high-skill, high low-skill workers, then actually this doesn't do any harm because you can rearrange the production so that everybody uh, is doing, you know, reproducing the same mix of goods with the same resources as before. Um, and it looks like that. The angel descends, and the world is divided. You can represent the world as some point in that box so that uh, you're measuring the resources of north, the labor forces of north from the bottom left and the labor forces of south from the, the upper right. Uh, you pick some point in that box, and uh, and... Know, everywhere. Uh, here's the thing: as long as the the division of the world lies inside that parallelogram, there is some way to allocate the production of computers and apparel so that you are producing exactly what you were before, and, uh, and no harm is done. And, and in that case, of course, nothing else changes. The uh, the wages of the two types of, of workers don't change, so you end up with factor prices equalized. But if you're outside the box, the wages will be different. And if North has got a lot more skilled relative to unskilled workers, then the wage rate of unskilled workers will be higher in North than it is in, in South. So you will get this. Uh, um, okay. The uh, oops, that went faster than I meant to, but it's fine. Um, here's how one way, the simplest way to think about what all the outsourcing and stuff is about. Suppose that's actually those arrows don't really represent computers and apparel; they represent high skill and low skill activities. Uh, and in fact, in producing computers, it's a mixture of high-skill and low-skill activities, although mostly high-skill. And in producing apparel, it's a mixture of high-skill and low-skill activities, although mostly low-skill. Uh, then what the actual inputs into computers look like is that red first li red line on the left. It's a, it's a, it's a mixture of the high-skill and the low-skill activities. Uh, and then the resources in the apparel is... The, the second red line as you move clockwise around. Uh, so it's, it, you're actually not able, uh, sorry, if, if you're not allowed to break up those activities geographically, if you have to do them in the same country, then what you actually have, the, the actual computer industry is not as skill intensive uh, as the skill intensive activities that comprise it. The uh, labor intensive, the, the apparel industry is not as labor intensive as the labor uh, intensive activities that comprise it. So the possibility of equalizing the wages, the possibility of, of not undoing the, uh, the, you know, the, the curse of the angel is smaller. The region within which you get factor price equalization is smaller. Uh, and it becomes more likely that you'll have a world in which factor prices are not equalized. It becomes more likely that, that what the angel did will put you outside the box. Um, what outsourcing, offshoring, whatever you want to call it, does, at least one way to think about it, is it's, it has become possible on a wider range of things to break up those pieces of the production process. So it's actually moving in the reverse of the way I just constructed this diagram. That uh, before it was that the red parallelogram, it now becomes the black parallelogram. Uh, the possibilities of equalizing factor prices become larger. Now, caveats. Uh, there are lots of differences in countries besides uh, the ratio of skilled to unskilled workers. Uh, technologies appear to be different. Stuff is just, uh, there's every indication that when a Mexican worker moves to the United States, uh, he or she is actually more productive than he or she would have been in Mexico, even given the same equipment and all of these things. Uh, the, uh, so it, it's, it, it's not the full story, but this gives you, what, what the moral of this story is, is that if you had... Um, equalized uh, factor prices um, that uh, sort, sorry that if, if, if we just take the simple version um, what outsourcing would do is would take you would make it much more likely that you would equalize factor prices uh, and therefore make it uh, presumably uh, the presumption is that the effect of outsourcing is to do what trade does which is to make uh, uh, to widen the gap between skilled and unskilled workers in advanced countries where where skilled labor is, is relatively abundant. Um, 
Actually, uh, Greg Mankiw, as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, got in huge trouble for saying, well, outsourcing is just a form of trade, and trade is good, so we should encourage it, uh, which I must say, although yeah, he, he's been upset ever since uh, for, at the enormous reaction, saying, well, you know, I said that was perfectly true, and, you know, but uh, if you take a political job, you have to expect that sort of thing. Uh, a certain amount of euphemisms are expected, but... Um, but the other thing to say about that is he was saying, presuming that we have a, uh, a consensus that trade is good. And the fact of the matter is this increase in outsourcing does likely increase trade, including the things that are not so good, the increase in income inequality. Caveat I have to make, especially, I would have made it anyway, but especially given uh, that Tony is here. Um, if you don't equalize factor prices, um, things can be a, a bit more complicated. And in particular, there's been a lot of attention to the possibility that what happens as we have growing international trade is that medium skill activities move from north to south, that the low skill activities were already in the south. The high skill activities stay in the north, but the medium skill activities move from north to south, uh, which is a possibility. And that can have the effect actually of raising inequality in both places that uh, you're, you're both losing the low-skilled jobs, um, reducing the demand for low-skilled labor in, in north, and at the same time having an upskilling of production in the south, which also raises inequality. And that the reason why that's an interesting possibility is because that's what seems to have been happening. Uh, at least uh, it's, it's very well documented for the U.S. versus Mexico, inequality rising in both places as the trade grows. Uh, but that's a, I don't think that affects the, the basic point about what we're since I'm focusing on the advanced countries, that the outsourcing, you know, it's not that we're going to lose all the jobs, it's that the same income distribution effects we see from the stuff we already know are likely to be worse as these new possibilities of trade, trade and disembodied services grows. Um, the other thing, some people talk about outsourcing not meaning breaking up of the production of stuff, but simply trading things that were not previously tradable having your, uh, the guy who reads your x-rays be in, in, uh, in Bangalore. Um, it actually makes no difference. It's the same story. It's, again, it's likely to increase the distributional effects. What do we do if we're in that? Uh, I'll say again, I'm, I'm very much, uh, I, I think that the open world trading regime is terribly, terribly important for some of the very poorest countries. So how do you, uh, how do you respond to, but I think intellectual honesty requires that you acknowledge that there are real distributional issues here. So uh, how, how do you deal with it? Now, one possibility would be to say, well, look, let's you know, try to work with some bipartisan group of people who, who understand the global stuff and, and you can maybe build a coalition. Uh, just a quick word about U.S. politics. Uh, we can actually measure people's the political scientists are doing really interesting stuff. You can measure people's position on, on a left-right spectrum. Uh, and this is the way U.S. politics used to look. You know, Democrats to the left, Republicans to the right, but there was really a center. Uh, there is no center now. Uh, this is actually before. At this point now, the, uh, the, uh, the rightmost Democrat is to the left of the leftmost Republican. We have no, you know, we just don't talk. We don't have, uh, um, and... Um, Certainly, from my point of view, uh, there's no one I can talk to uh, on that right half uh, of it. So you have to whatever arguments you're going to make has to be has to be made on the uh, in the left part. Um, there is a global uh, issue. You can argue for the uh, um, uh, you can argue for the terrible things that would happen if the U.S. really did go protectionist, and I think that's very important. But you have to have some answer to people who say, "But what about rising inequality?" And let me then bring you the saving grace of the story, uh, which is that although it does look like trade is a bigger factor in this rising college-high school gap, rising premium on education, uh, fortunately, in a way for me, uh, that's not the main story of inequality in the United States. It's the story about the increased inequality between the 90th percentile and the 50th percentile. Uh, but that's not where the action really is. And so I'll just give you two pictures. This is from uh, Thomas Piketty and Emmanuel Saez, who've been producing these uh, remarkable estimates that look well within the top. This is the story of the United States since uh, World War I. 
Uh, once upon a time, this is the share of the top decile in income. Once upon a time, we were a highly unequal royalist society. Uh, and then, really quite suddenly, that's what uh, uh, the uh, uh, what, what we call the Great Compression, that we became during uh, the late 30s through the end of World War II, this relatively egalitarian middle-class society. Uh, and then beginning in the late 70s, we went back. And at this point, uh, you know, essentially, inter- income distribution in the United States is, is indistinguishable from that in, in, the, in the days of the Great Gatsby. Um, the, uh, uh, to take a look at that and say, well, gee, how much of, of that is globalization, pushing up the incomes of highly educated people in the top tenth of a percent, a top ten percent? And the answer is not much. Um, if you look within that, essentially everybody in this group is going to be on the winning end of globalization. The, uh, this is the 90th through the 95th percentile, the 95th through the 99th, and the top one. Uh, but the gains are overwhelmingly concentrated in that top 1% of the population. Uh, it's not the college, although the, there has been a rise in the income of college educated relative to those without, and globalization probably has a significant role in that. Um, mostly what you're seeing is the rise of the super elite within that group. And if I had gone on to do the uh, top tenth of a percent, that's even more spectacular. So it's really a, uh, uh, a transformation at the, at the very, very top end. It's uh, CEOs and school teachers have roughly the same d- amount of formal education, have not exactly had the same income evolution over this period. So, it's, uh, uh, so, that, you know, so the answer for someone in my position is to say, look, this is where the real action is, and this is what we need to uh, either do something about or at least tax those people more and use it to pay for universal health care. Uh, but it's it, the. I am feeling a little chastened. The uh, the relatively calm uh, trade is not that big a problem view that that we had uh, in in the mid 90s. I think does have to deal with the fact that we have a lot more trade with even poorer countries than we did before, and that is uh, that is a change. Thanks. Okay, excuse me, we've got 10 minutes for for questions, but we do have to be out of this room at 2 o'clock. I'll I'll take a couple of rounds of questions. Can people stand up, say who they are, are, and please be very brief, sort of questions, not not long talks. Uh, Okay, one there, Uh, one in the top. Please, go ahead. Um, Linda Kosher from uh, Geography LSE. Um, it, this seems uh, s- somewhat passe in that you, you seem to miss completely the um, the, uh, the liberalisation of labour movement that is now built into trade agreements. And this might be a bigger factor in Europe, I accept. But the GATS, for instance, the EU has offered the liberalisation of labour to open up to 150 yeah. countries, primarily India and China. So we're talking about that, and we're also talking about skilled labour, skilled labour coming in and the effect on wages. And it was also included in the five uh, free trade agreements that got the go-ahead in the EU last week, again with India, and again including as the primary thing the movement of skilled labour into the EU. Okay, there was one up there. I'm Carlos Santiago, Economic History. Uh, As an economic historian, it's surprising to see that this debate is not a new one. We had it a long time ago. And when we debate this, uh, what I teach my students, uh, I hope I'm not wrong, uh, is that uh, there is a strong non-wage component when we analyze this. Because we have been talking about inequality and good and bad. I do agree with that. But I want to ask you to what extent uh, all that good and bad effects are included in your wage components and you know, what is going on with your non-wage component. That is what happens if you analyze, I don't know, uh, life expectancy instead of uh, just uh, money. A gentleman in the middle, I think. Uh, Nick Stern, Economics. Um, I wanted to ask, Paul, if you could tell us something about um, the overall growth story in all this, because you've been talking really about inequality and the rise of China and the rise of India um, should uh, have a strong effect on, is have, are having a strong effect on world growth. And how would you see that in relation to income levels in the different countries? 
Okay, we'll take one more from the top and then ask Paul right. to, to comment on that group and should yeah. be time for another, another round or two. Uh, Tom Hart, I'm an ex-student here. Um, looking at that graph there, you've said where the real action is in the top 1%. I think the um, evidence is fairly similar in the UK. Um, in the absence of a Great Depression and a world war, what's the policy response? Okay. How many hours do I have here? All right. Uh, let me talk um, about labor movement. Uh, sure. Uh, I mean, skilled labor, at least within this kind of framework, and I think in reality, immigration of skilled labor um, is tends to reduce inequality. I mean, we can. There, there's a lot of back and forth about that, but I think the um, the, the basic argument has to be that the uh, increased supply of uh, of you know, South Asian uh, engineers in the United States is uh, is somewhat reducing the premium on on particularly on advanced education. Uh, and it's something to be welcomed, uh, in spite of the fact that I know that's easy for me to. Well, actually, there's a fair amount of that competition in the academic world too. So it's uh, not, not, no. I mean, it, it's, it's and 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 you know that's a whole other issue right? in the U.S. the uh, the immigration issue and the but the core of that issue is in fact the skilled workers are um, is the least of it. The the, the problem we have is uh, that that is agonizing, agonizing morally, politically is the. Uh, uh, is the low-skilled workers uh, primarily from Mexico? Just uh, you know, huge, huge benefits to the migrants themselves, uh, uh, but some exacerbation of inequality and huge difficulties of political economy as you get a essentially disenfranchised bottom slice of the workforce. Uh, what does that do uh, to, to to your ability to sustain a, a decent uh, a decent political society? Um, I have no idea what. Uh, how you do with the uh, non-wage. I mean, we, we do know that in the United States gradients, uh, socioeconomic gradients on things like life expectancy are rising. Uh, pro how much of that is because of the uh, of this, I don't know. Um, yeah, next turn. Uh, growth. Um, yeah, uh, that's a whole... What, what is the effect of the rise of China on the growth of the world economy? Obviously, uh, the first order effect is... Uh, the Chinese component of the world economy is growing a lot. Uh, that's that's kind of stupid, but it's uh, um, and and in terms of human welfare, clearly you're taking a, a large number of, of desperately poor people and making them considerably less so, and that's got to be a good thing. Uh, impact on the developed countries uh, is, uh, you know, in principle, those things are ambiguous. On the one hand, you get a, a greater, cheaper supply of stuff that the Chinese make. On the other hand, uh, you get uh, it, in principle, the, the normal thing, if, if people have tended to say, well, this is a, a case of trade and growth where the, the growth has favorable spillovers because what the Chinese are producing, at least at this point, is mostly things that we import and not competing with our exports. However, uh, there's a third uh, factor here, which is natural resources. And I think if you were trying to measure the impact of Chinese growth on U.S. and EU real income uh, over the past 15 years, uh, I suspect that the impact on the prices, uh, price of oil and other commodities is probably the, the largest single component and is negative. Uh, and, uh, and then environment, uh, you know, Nick of all people, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, is that, are, that, are those Chinese coal-fired plants basically just going to drown us all? Um, and uh, uh, which, of course, it's not really a policy issue because, uh, you know, what are we proposing to do? You know, uh, uh, Newcomb cut off all their exports so they can't grow. It's, uh, but no, it's, 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 you know, it's really, uh, I'd say on the whole, if you were, you know, had a crazy uh, social welfare function where you really, uh, you know, if, if you could wish the Chinese off the face of the earth, you would, uh, then it's probably true that real income would be at least some tenths of a percentage point higher in, in the advanced world if they didn't exist. But, you know, it's not, this is not a policy option. Um, <laughs> speaking of policy options, yeah, um, this is that's huge territory. I mean, we 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 know that the uh, that there is clearly well, I think I know that there's clearly a political, social, institutional element in this rise in inequality. Uh, uh, if you look at the international comparisons, you see a muted version of this picture for the UK uh, and also in Canada, and none at all in continental European countries or Japan. Uh, which suggests that 
Maybe it's not quite that. Whatever it is that's happening, it seems to be uh, contagion among English-speaking countries. Uh, and, and we could talk about the, the reasons for that uh, uh, at some length. Um, that's still in terms of policy options. The, uh, I, I think that uh, we, we didn't realize how important in the United States, how important the strong union movement was to, uh, to maintaining some checks and balances uh, uh, until, until we lost it. And that's, I think, one really important thing. Uh, but other than that, the main thing right now, in terms of actual discussions about what what you can do, which which are being being held at least in principle, um, is that um, uh, you know, we used to say that look, you know, trying to soak the rich to pay for stuff is not going to work because there just isn't enough money up there. Uh, now there is. Uh, <laughs> simply a, a return to uh, uh, you know, I, I, right now we we know that that you know to take the most immediate thing, rolling back. The, uh, the, the uh, top end Bush tax cuts, just the, the capital gains, dividends, and upper bracket stuff, which would leave 97% uh, of the population completely unaffected, uh, is enough to, uh, to pay for covering all of the uninsured in the United States. That's the, we're talking big numbers here. Uh, returning to levels of tax progressivity that the United States had uh, 25, 30 years ago uh, would be even more. So the, the main thing, not, not to punish the rich, but simply to uh, you know, tax them to uh, raise enough money to pay for things that we need. <laughs> okay, we have, oh. okay, I guess we're, uh, okay, well, thank okay. you very much. Okay, well, thank you, Paul. It's really, uh, it, it, it's really interesting to me watching sort of international economics profession trying to take on board these ideas of fragmentation. And obviously what we need are models that are rich enough to really be interesting and capture what's going on, but simple and elegant and easily communicated. So um, I mean, can I say welcome back to the master? <laughs> uh, it's very good to have Paul, uh, Paul, Paul, Paul engaging in this. And, of course, I hope that as he does so, I mean, one of the aspects of fragmentation that is really important is that by splitting things down, production into their component parts, it really is an opportunity for some of the very poorest countries in the world to, to get engaged uh, in world production systems. Real opportunities for Africa, I think, as we uh, specialize down in narrower and narrower tasks. So I very much hope that will be part of the, uh, the emerging story, the emerging work uh, on all this. One final thing. Uh, there are books for sale outside, Indeed. including uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, European edition of Economics, I believe, at a substantial discount. Okay, uh, thank you. Yes, we're trying to get in oh, here probably. so we can pay more taxes. <laughs> <laughs> thank you again, Paul. Thanks.